everybody. Welcome to the DeFi Mafia podcast. David here with Mike and Jack Gilchrist, our co-hosts. And we have special guest John Wu on from Aztec. And we'll also have Joe Andrews on, uh, the co-founder as well. He's running a little late. So we're going to start with John. John, how are you today? Doing great. Thanks for having me on, guys. Thanks so much for coming on. Um, so we'll just get right into it. Uh, there's a lot of approaches to Ethereum scaling and a lot of debate. And we just want to know, to start, what is Aztec's view and what is Aztec doing? Yeah, so Aztec is a privacy-first ZK rollup. Um, we're actually a recursive ZK rollup, so we have two layers of ZKs. Um, one uh, on the client side to protect user privacy. And then after those transactions are encrypted, we roll them up. Um, and that second layer of ZKs is used for scaling. And so unlike a lot of the other rollups who are scalability first, um, and many of which are EVM compatible, um, our goal really is to be privacy first. And the way we achieve that is for now shipping a product that we called Aztec Connect. Um, and that uh, has been live on mainnet since last week. And that is essentially a VPN for Ethereum. It allows you to do any arbitrary service on Ethereum with complete privacy and cost savings. And long-term, our view is that we'll have uh, a private execution environment off-chain. Um, it'll look a little bit more like Starkware, but with privacy by default. And that will enable things like private smart contracts um, and kind of uh, execution, simultaneous execution of both public state and private state uh, smart contracts. Got you, got you. And so when you look at like, say, ZKs versus Optimist or whatever, why do you guys view ZK as the superior solution? Um, for one, uh, as, as I said before, we're privacy first. And so our view is we need to use ZKs for their encryption benefits. Um, and so in terms of scalability, uh, I think the consensus view, a lot driven by uh, something that Vitalik published a long time ago, is this idea that um, a zero knowledge rollup just needs to post um, a valid proof of off-chain execution. And there are a couple benefits of this over an optimistic approach. Um, for one, you don't have to wait for this fraud period, and so there's no risk of uh, rolling back the chain state. Um, for the second, uh, every transaction is known to be valid the moment that the proof is validated. And so there's no kind of like, um, you know, single honest user trust assumption that you get with optimistic rollups. Um, and so, you know, we obviously believe in the scaling benefits of ZKs, but for us, it's kind of uh, something that we can't get around because we're so dedicated privacy first. Right. On the privacy side of things, um, I mean, I know there's like a lot of, there's been a lot of solutions like the privacy sector, crypto, and up to this point, it hasn't really been something that's been like, oh, this is like the de facto privacy type of thing outside of maybe like, you know, tornado cash. Like what, why is privacy so important for you guys? Like thinking longer term um, for like crypto and like adoption and um, I guess even like compliance, right? Cause you guys have, you guys do have, don't you guys have something built in for that uh, with the rollup? Yeah, so a lot there. I mean, the first is just talking about like, why is privacy important, right? And so mm -hmm. I, I would start by saying like, you know, our view is there are many different values to privacy. Like the first most important value is just discretion. Um, there's something deeply unsettling about everyone in the world being able to see uh, everything that you do. 
And, and here I want to really draw the distinction between Web 2 privacy and Web 3 privacy. I think we oftentimes get pushback from like privacy doubters um, about like why privacy is important in Web 3 because, you know, privacy doesn't seem that important in Web 2. There are a couple really successful Web 2 companies uh, that are privacy first, right? The whole VPN industry, um, Tor Browser, uh, Signal, DuckDuckGo, Brave. There's a couple, but like you... We, we wouldn't say that those were really the standout companies in Web2. And so the distinction that I would draw there is that there is already an inbuilt privacy default in Web2. For instance, nobody can just read every single one of your emails and bank transactions. Um, you, if I send something to you, um, you know, on PayPal or whatever, nobody can just see all the amounts in the center and the recipient. Right. And so I would say that base level of privacy doesn't even exist in Web3. And so to kind of put a bow on that, like the most, the, the, the first and most obvious one is just simple discretion. It's, it's unsettling and it's just frankly a, a matter of basic rights to not have everything you do exposed to every other actor. The second is security. You know, when people can see all of your on-chain behaviors, it leads to significant security issues. And, you know, for a long time, I think people were making fun of the board Ape community for kind of like giving up their bored apes and, and being targeted in phishing attacks. Well, you can imagine a world where that doesn't happen if people can buy with discretion, right? If I can purchase NFTs privately, if I can, you know, conduct my economic life uh, with some amount of privacy, then I'm far less likely to be targeted. Certainly, you could still have spam. You could have someone just target everyone and just send messages to everyone that kind of look pretty similar. But these phishing and especially spear phishing attacks where individual users like Arthur Zero X get targeted with like an email that's produced to look like an email coming from one of his portfolio companies about a topic that like might interest him. You know, that type of specificity is really just not possible once you have really basic Web2 consumer privacy. Right. If you can't read my emails, the best you can do is like, you know, hey, buy Viagra for 13 cents. And it's like. Just like ad targeting, it's like, it's just a very poorly targeted piece of spam for me. It's easy for me to like click, ignore, report, et cetera. And then the last thing is that we think privacy is, is too quickly conflated with those prior two notions of like, it's just discretion, it's just secrecy. But actually privacy is an important game mechanic and a programming mechanic. This idea of like public and private state. For instance, like if I wanted to play a card game with you, you know, on an EVM compatible chain, it wouldn't be a very fun card game. We'd have to play face up um, because all the state is public. And that's what's beautiful about the EVM, right? Um, we kind of get this public execution that we can all validate. We, it's trustless because, you know, we can kind of see what's happened. We can run our own node to do so. Um, and, and it's all consensus driven. Um, but that what that doesn't allow you to do is play really, really basic games that we take for granted. Not only games in the literal sense of like, we can play a card game with the cards face down, but designs of really everything from financial systems to you know our, our general society, right? Imagine if you couldn't ever vote privately. Imagine if you could never have a contract agreement with someone else that nobody else could see. It would be just much, much harder to run society, right? It's actually like a very, very critical part um, of the way that we live. And one exercise for you to like kind of learn how important privacy is, is just to go through your day and every time you do something, ask yourself, like, how would this transaction look different if this were exposed to everyone? And you'll quickly realize that, like, 
our entire life is premised on this assumption of privacy in most cases. Right. It's funny you mentioned the game because Jack here uh, is building uh, Battle Zips, which is basically a ZK version of Battleship. And uh, you need exactly what you're talking about. Jack, I'm not sure if you wanted to like comment on that since uh, something you're working on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's the same exact idea, right? Um, in a, a very basic game, uh, that hidden information presents itself, but then um, throughout all these real use cases, uh, it, it, that's where it really can be applied to great effect. So, um, yeah, and I, I guess um, to kind of transition a little bit, um, I, I do have a little bit of a question um, about how um, something like this maybe could be applied to MEV, right? Um, so this is kind of getting into Aztec Connect, but um, is is that the kind of uh, tooling that would allow you to hide your transactions from front runners, sandwichers, stuff like that? Yeah, so I, I want to draw the distinction between Aztec Connect and our future state. And by the way, I saw you guys at ETH Denver, so uh, oh, a yeah? fan of Battlezip. Right. So yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, so. Um, as a connect, because all the execution happens on layer one, uh, doesn't really have any inbuilt layer two MEV protection because all the execution happens on Ethereum. So just to go back to the analogy of it's a VPN for Ethereum, we're really a privacy layer on top of Ethereum. And so because all of our transactions settle on layer one, they are still vulnerable to MEV. Now, for whatever reason, we've been tracking it and it doesn't seem like any of these transactions are being front run. Um, I would guess because of uh, potentially just low order size on things like the element bridge. And then for curve, just like there's not that much slippage to get ahead of. Um, that's our thesis. But, uh, you know, I think a, a bunch more analysis has to happen in the future state, you know, where we have concurrent public private off chain execution, where there's like public programs and there's private programs. And they're both kind of like putting transactions, um, you know, into this validator pool to be picked up. Um, the public transactions, there will be some amount of extractable MEV, but the private ones, you can imagine it'd be very, very hard for a validator to like pull something um, meaningful right. or, or they would be at a significant disadvantage. And so um, as the validator looks to include transactions, public and private, the private ones kind of just all look like generic encrypted notes. And what is contained inside of them is very hard to know. So is there something like probabilistic MEV extraction, like potentially? Um, and I'm sure the MEV researchers out there will have a field day thinking about, you know, ways in which you can still extract. Um, but at least the way the system is designed now, it seems like there would be a significant impediment to being front run, for instance. Yeah, that's really cool. And to kind of circle it back to that conversation of privacy, I mean, this is a conversation that we're having that's enabled by privacy. Um, it's in negative externality that's mitigated by privacy potentially, um, again, with, you know, these asterisks that you've mentioned, but very cool. Yes, exactly. Oh, like another part of privacy that's really interesting to me is the DeFi uh, privacy area. Like, do you think that, like, uh, what, I guess what's the bigger vision long-term, like say five, 10 years down the road, uh, do you think all of DeFi will be private? pretty much and like people do wallet tracking things like that do you think that'll all pretty much be gone i think it's hard to know i think there's some value to the you know the amm design and amms 
uh, have been pretty robust. You know, there's a universe in which you build a private order book exchange, for instance, on, you know, Aztec's future system. And we anticipate a lot of work will go into thinking about how that's done um, so that people can't see the positions that you're submitting. Um, and there's potentially a private matching engine that um, uh, that creates uh, the spot exchange necessary to set the exchange's price. But clearly there's something about AMMs and their simplicity and robustness that's still very appealing. For instance, like on Solana, I think, you know, the the team there in Alameda pushed really hard for an order book exchange. Um, and it still seems like the most popular exchanges, if I'm not mistaken, are AMMs. And um, so that design, I, I, I have a hard time saying that these like public uh, these designs that are premised on public state execution are going to go away because they've just proven their robustness and their battle testedness. Um, but obviously, our bet is that consumers are going to really care about discretion and maybe even more important than consumers, institutions and businesses. It's very, very hard to conduct business when you have to publicize every single thing that you do. There's some amount of IP, uh, some amount of proprietariness to your business activity that you would want to hide from other people right um and and it, it boils down to some things that are as basic as payments like one of the biggest prizes that we still think um are is available to be won is like private decentralized stablecoin payments um we've got kind of like two of the three pieces but we don't have the third and so if we ever think DAOs are going to become a thing decentralized organizations are going to become a thing then compensating people in full transparency is probably not going to be the winning solution, right? Um, and maybe we structure our whole world that way and that element of the game goes away, you know, kind of like these information asymmetries go away. But I would argue that a lot of businesses are premised on having an information asymmetry advantage. Um, you know, we talk about like alpha all the time, right? Um, if there wasn't an information asymmetry advantage, then uh, it'd be really hard to compete. It would really be, it would be hard to have an edge. Right. What are your, like, what's your, like, I guess taking a little bit of a step back, like, what is your general thoughts on, like, DAO governance right now and, I guess, like, gaming, like, the gaming sector specifically that we touched on a little bit earlier? Um, on DAO governance, I, I'm, I'm still a little tough on, on DAOs as a concept. I think, uh, I think most people, including folks building DAO governance tools, have a hard time defining a DAO in my mind or at least I haven't heard like a very compelling definition. I think we're conflating a little bit uh, when it comes to a DAO, like whether we're talking about like a legal wrapper, like, oh, a DAO is a way to conceive of an entity, right? It's like decentralized, there's individuals have shares in it. It's like an LLC, but it's on chain. Um, or is it like an organizational structure in a hierarchy? It's this notion that like, it's non-hierarchical, that like every holder has a vote um, and those, two things are kind of a little bit muddled in my mind. Um, so I think we have a little bit of a ways to go before DAOs prove that they're a superior governance structure, either in like entity definition form or like organizational hierarchy form. And like, you know, not to FUD the DAO space, but I just, I always challenge people like, you know, let's, let's put all the successful organizations that have a traditional entity structure in the left column. And I want to put all the successful crypto projects with a DAO structure in the right column. And I would like to just count them up. And I think we would all agree that the left column is just like infinitely longer than the right column. So I, th I think there's a big question of like, what is missing there? I mean, you know, not to be a homer here, but like, you know, a big part of it, I think is privacy, right? Like that 
the discretion and proprietariness of being able to conduct things uh, in a small group without having to go to top level governance every time to ask for permission. It's a it's a big friction point. So on the topic of like DAOs, right, uh, I guess transitioning off of that, there's a lot of debate like Starkware just announced yesterday that they're launching their token. Um, and there's a lot of debate of should L2s have a token? Should they not? Obviously, I know you guys can't probably disclose everything specifically. But like, what are your guys' general thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I don't think we're ready to talk about uh, tokens at all. And we obviously don't have one, which is always a necessary disclosure for folks who get tricked, unfortunately, into thinking there is one. Um, I, I, I struggle with the argument for why L2 should not have tokens. Like, if there's any type of actor incentive required on an L2, then it makes sense that there should be a token. And it's not ultimately clear to me the whole narrative behind L2s being extractive or vampiric to Ethereum. Um, I have this really strong belief that L2 activity is only additive to Ethereum. For instance, like I think that L2s uh, have certain assumptions baked in that, in my opinion, today are weaker than Ethereum and potentially for the long term will be slightly weaker than Ethereum. There is... Um, a secure there are certain security assumptions you have to make on top of ethereum you know by definition it's built on top of ethereum so there are additional uh security assumptions that have to be made um and so the type of user who uses a layer two in my mind is just not the same user as someone who's willing to transact on layer one and my analogy for this is like imagining ethereum like a highway and layer one transactions being like private cars where like you can drive your own car, it's very expensive to do so, it's very inefficient to do so, but like you're fully in control, uh, you have your hand on the steering wheel, um, and and that's that's a layer one transaction. A layer two transaction is like a bus, right? You know, all of us are kind of like batching. You know, it's a loose analogy, but we're we're all batching up a bunch of user transactions, and then each user gets to save a bunch of money. But there's like this like somewhat additional trust assumption, right? There's like a bus driver, which you can conceive of as, you know, uh, some security assumption that everything is built correctly because it is built on top of Ethereum. And so now the question you have to ask is like, well, are car drivers going to like stop using their cars and take the bus instead? I think there's like maybe some people who would do that, right? But the type of person who wants to take an Uber or who wants to drive their BMW down the highway is just not the same person who wants to take the bus. And so... Um, I have a very hard time internalizing the narrative that like L2s um, hurt Ethereum in any way because they are competing for Ethereum block space, which by definition should make Ethereum block space more valuable. And 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 somehow the argument, if we're going to stick with this analogy, is like the bus shouldn't be like charging money for bus tickets. Like obviously they should have they, they should have some way of like accounting for this like microeconomy that sits on top of ethereum right like we're all paying the tolls to like run on ethereum but there's this microeconomy that sits on top of it and so why shouldn't that microeconomy also be governed by some economic incentive um so yeah to speak in generalities I don't, I don't really uh understand that line of thinking that like l2s like shouldn't have tokens or a token is like vampiric in some way right right no that makes sense like i think the other argument too is just if you want mass adoption for Ethereum, you need scaling anyways. So like the idea that like 
Ethereum is losing from people building on top of it is just, to me, never made much sense either. Uh, yeah. Joe, are you there? Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, sorry, I was uh, a few minutes late at the start of this. No, you're good. You're good. Thanks so much for coming on. So we've kind of gone over a little bit of like uh, general Ethereum scaling uh, thoughts. And uh, I guess we I just want to step back for a second since you're the co-founder of Aztec. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about like Aztec's founding and uh, like how you guys started and why? Yeah, sure. Um, I think we we started pre pre DeFi really. Um, I think Maker was around, um, but it, it was still it was back when kind of um, people were trying to directly replicate putting uh, centralized kind of finance on chain without kind of thinking about how it should actually interact on chain. And we actually started by trying to put corporate debt onto Ethereum, um, like working with banks, trying to kind of uh, disrupt mid-market debt. Um, we realized pretty quickly that that was just not tenable without privacy. Um, so Zach, uh, who's the, our, our, our other co-founder, um, started looking at kind of some of the ZK Snark technology that was kind of around at the time. And that's how the original Aztec protocol was born. Um, so we kind of pivoted to that after kind of realizing the potential of building out this privacy infrastructure uh, that could enable kind of all kinds of things to come on, on chain that just weren't possible before. Um, and we kind of got hooked by that about three, four years ago and uh, haven't really looked back since. So um, it was kind of out of necessity really uh, that Aztec was created because of something we were trying to build at the time. Yeah, true. And you guys are trying to build like multiple things. How do you, decide where to focus most of your efforts at any given time? I think it's like, um, we're really just trying to build one thing. We've just broken it down into stages. So um, like if you zoom out, uh, we're trying to build kind of uh, a programmable privacy network um, that kind of has fully encrypted state. Um, it's fully programmable that developers can Kind of just build whatever they want uh, uh, with with really strong privacy guarantees and and cheap transactions, but to get there, we've had to break it into kind of stages that are kind of uh, feasible at the time. Like when we started, like four years ago, um, Snark Tech was very slow; like none of this was possible. And kind of why it looks like kind of we're building a lot is because we're we're kind of putting out um, instead of just waiting until everything's ready, we're putting out kind of a product at every every iteration of the technology to show kind of what's what the current latest tech could do. So we started with ZK Money about a year ago, which did, just did payments. Uh, we just shipped Aztec Connect, which does kind of private DeFi. And we're kind of, uh, there's another big upgrade coming in about uh, eight to 12 months, which is full programmability. And John mentioned before that you guys see payments as one of the uh, biggest opportunities still there. What do you think is holding back ZK Money or other payment solutions from really reaching mass adoption right now? Oh, it's a great question. Uh, I got a lot of thoughts here, actually. Um, it, it's actually the wallet. Um, so, like, you're not going to pay for something if you have to download um, some janky wallet UI and jump through hoops to kind of um, get funds onto that just to sign up or pay for some service. Um, I think we need very tight uh, wallet integrations uh, in the browser or in a phone for that to come. It's something that um, the Aztec tech stack can enable. Um, there's a type of signature that's built into kind of touch IDs uh, on iPhones and Androids 
you can actually validate in a ZK snark. Um, so it's something we're thinking about uh, working on in the future to kind of add that into our SDK to enable kind of mass uh, mass adoption payments. Like we wouldn't be the payments provider, but it would be something developers could use on, on our network. But I think it's really, um, yeah, like having a kind of a secure way to store your funds on the phone that integrates with the browser, because that's where most of us do our kind of online payments is one. Um, and then just growing growing the user base, really. I think the payments will start with uh, more crypto-native people who have funds, who get paid by DAOs, and they want to start spending their, their kind of uh, crypto on something. Um, and if there was a kind of really neat browser integration to do that that uh, was well adopted, I think uh, it will start to take off. Um, I think the other big thing is privacy. Um, just kind of you're already tracked around the internet um, in terms of like cookies and um, what kind of advertisers want you to purchase and kind of think you're going to purchase, giving them kind of uh, absolute uh, kind of verification that you have purchased it by having it recorded on a public blockchain is also kind of a big blocker, I think, uh, for a lot of us uh, to actually use um, some of these uh, payment services, like having, having my purchase history on chain would be quite scary, I think. Not yeah. because of what I just, just, just in general. Mm -hmm. I think I'm um, going to say something like maybe controversial to that point, which is like I also think there's deep regulatory uncertainty, and like the SEC is fully aware of what they're doing, and like other regulatory bodies potentially uh, haven't pursued the same approach. But uh, this notion that like they're keeping crypto in this regulatory gray zone so as not to be affirmative, because if they were affirmative, they drew a a bright red line, then kind of like we could hash out in court, like whether this followed SEC's affirmative guidance. But the fact that crypto has been kept in this like regulatorily uncertain state, I think makes it very hard for like broad mass adoption. And I'm hoping that's something that regulatory bodies throughout the world like gain conviction on. Like crypto is obviously very hard to understand, like even us in the industry, like it's hard to keep up with the like torrid pace of innovation. But like my genuine belief is that regulatory bodies will eventually come under sufficient pressure from the general public um, to have to actually make an affirmative stance. And then, you know, it's, then you then you have an, an app on the app store, then you have, you know, um, uh, stuff that's, to Joe's point, less janky. Yeah, it seems like regulatory attention is kind of at all time high right now, I would say, especially obviously with, you know, a lot of the recent uh, collapses and, and, and such. Where do you see, I mean, I don't know how much you guys yourselves have any interaction with regulators, but like uh, to your best like knowledge, where do you see the regulatory landscape heading over the next like year or two? Yeah, I could take a stab. I think we have this opportunity to kind of uh, kind of help it land in the right place. Um, I personally believe it's kind of not at the infrastructure level, not at the kind of open source software kind of writer's level but maybe more at the, the application level um that's where it kind of exists uh, in a web 2 context like you have all these like new neo banks that are, are regulated entities like i think a crypto wallet is is not in the same class but you could see um in the future like a crypto wallet with dollar stable assets um and savings accounts and payments having some kind of regulation um I think that's where it should land. Um, and, and we try and design kind of our SDKs and uh, uh, software so that developers can build that into it. I do think there is a bit of a kind of 
uphill struggle maybe to to get it to land there. It's not like a done deal. Like I think regulators currently just look at the whole system and just think, hey, we, we should just we should just regulate crypto and they, they don't really understand the nuances of it. Um, and they kind of just take this blanket approach rather than trying to see what looks like something in the existing financial um, uh, world and kind of align it with that. Yeah. Do you think, do you think that more of them are at least, I mean, obviously it varies because it's a very global thing. Like in the U S it seemed like last year it was more positive um, there was like some positive hearings, like when, you know, Sam and, and other people went to uh, Congress, but then obviously lately, I think it's been more of a negative tone. Um, do you have any like specific concerns that you'd say this would be really bad if, if like this happened that could p- potentially happen? Yeah, I can take a stab. I mean, I, I would say that the failure of centralized gateways to decentralized finance really muddled the question for a lot of people mm-hmm. like the failure of celsius which is broadly labeled as a crypto company um first it's going to get a lot of regulatory attention it's gotten a lot of tabloid attention um i would say even traditional finance people are paying a lot of attention to celsius because it's going to make it through you know chapter 11 bankruptcy and we're going to see all the shady stuff that happens and it's not to say that you know bad things don't happen in crypto but like the actions of a highly opaque centralized entity that was doing frankly irresponsible things with a technology that uh, that underlies it and was safe the entire time right all the lending protocols that they access like function exactly as they should have i think that's going to really muddy the waters for regulators and for average people um because the nuance is hard to understand like okay so it's a centralized gateway to crypto isn't that just crypto and it's hard to understand that, like, oh, that's actually an abstraction on top of the protocol layer. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm definitely worried about that, and it's already happened. Yeah, yeah. For me, okay. I think it's like uh, kind of regulation around unhosted wallets as well. So if you take mm-hmm. everything John said, and then a regulator comes in and, and looks at that and says, the only way through this is to have like regulated, centralized uh, access to to crypto and these lending protocols. And you can't use an unhosted wallet, i.e., your own keys. Like that would be a terrible outcome. And there's been kind of murmurings of that in the U.S. previously. Like I know Coinbase um, came out against it pretty strong, but um, kind of having to do all these checks uh, against unhosted wallets would be, I think, a really backward step for kind of self-custody um, and actually uh, kind of the, the main benefits uh, that a lot of people get when accessing these protocols because they don't have to rely on a Celsius. Um, they can just use the UI and their own keys and and be comfortable with those trust assumptions. Right. That that was even like like I remember last year when um, I think it was Elizabeth Warren and some other uh, like American politicians started saying like self hosted wallets on hosted wallets as if I don't even like that term because it's as if you're have you have some like box in your house that you're operating. It's like no, it's just literally a, a key. Like that's all it is, and that's. Like, like really the hosted wallets, it's, I don't know. It just, it rubs me the wrong way when they throw these like terminology that doesn't even make sense to try to make it sound bad. Like you're doing something shady when it's like, no, that's how it's supposed to work. Like the centralized exchanges only exist in the first place because we need this, this bridge between fiat and and crypto. Um, But we can move on from, from regulation. If we go back to like scaling for a second, uh, recently DYDX, 
they made their own app chain, right? Because they said that they thought that was the best possible solution. What would your like argument against them or, or it doesn't have to necessarily be against them, but like why someone should use something like Aztec Connect versus doing their own app chain? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So I, I think that that they've said they're going to make an app chain is, is the first kind of distinction, which is, I think, several years uh, out in, in development. So it it may work for some specific use cases. Um, like if you have like very specific requirements, which I think they did outline quite well in their um, kind of rationale for this, like an app chain can make sense, um, but you have a lot of trade-offs in terms of composability. Um, and that kind of one use case you're going after has to be like ginormous and trading is a pretty big use case, but uh, people are only going to use that chain for DYDX. So um, it's going to rely on kind of uh, very good bridges to the rest of the ecosystem for people to come in and out quickly. Um, and it may get a lot of trading volume, but I don't know if it's going to kind of uh, appeal to kind of everyone because of the, the friction uh, at the entry and the exit. Um, you're going to go there if you're a trader, you want leverage, um, and you want to kind of execute trades um, on their system because the price is good. But other than that, there's, there's no real reason to have your funds there um, except kind of the risk of having them on that chain. Whereas uh, comparing that to something like Aztec, like the more kind of things you can do with those funds, the more utility for end users and, and for developers to kind of... Um, build network effects around their, their protocols. So um, it's probably smart from DYDX um, to kind of get that lock-in if they can execute on it. But um, I think trading is probably trading and maybe some sort of kind of social network or NFT-based things are the only real kind of use cases that could actually do app-specific chains um, because there's just so much... Uh, demand or, or transaction throughput for those sorts of things that it, it, it could warrant it. Right. One um, interesting thing that I saw, uh, John, you had wrote in one of your Medium articles was um, how Aztec Connect is essentially, I mean, you guys have essentially solved like liquidity fragmentation problem, right? Um, like, how do you see that kind of developing over, you know, the coming years, like, given that this will probably get some sort of adoption. Like there's a lot of like TVL on these alt L1s, right? Where, like the majority of it's like a blue chip DeFi protocol, like Aave. Um, you guys think that like your guys' solution solving liquidity fragmentation is gonna see like a lot of that TVL start to flow back to Ethereum. Um, and I guess just like other like general other implications that that could have on the space. I think it's worth like defining some of these terms that have made it into our shared consciousness, but like nobody really knows what it means. Like liquidity fragmentation is a, a perfect example, right? I think mm -hmm. what we refer, what we mean by liquidity fragmentation is like if I'm curve and I'm on Ethereum mainnet and I redeploy curve to Arbitrum, then like there's this understanding that like curve only has so many users and some proportion of the users are going to flee Ethereum mainnet and go to L2. So the first thing I'd say is like as I connect, obviously help solve this issue by not having to make protocols redeploy their contracts, right? Everything gets executed on layer one. So you get the benefit of full mainnet liquidity plus cost savings. But like even in a, a future state, right? Aztec will eventually have this future state. We'll have uh, a proprietary smart contracting language and a private execution environment. Like I also wouldn't think that that would fragment 
uh, Ethereum's liquidity because it's not like Curve is just going to move to our future private execution system. Like likely not, right? Likely it's going to be a new ecosystem of applications that are incremental and additive to Ethereum. And they'll still be able to connect seamlessly through Ethereum, through our existing product as that connect. Um, so, I mean, at least for us, like I think we're one of the friendliest solutions to this problem of, uh, that's very protocol focused, right? That a protocol has to kind of make this trade off between should I go to A or B? And if I go to both, like I'm going to have to like cut my user base into little different, you know, little pieces. And we think both of our solutions kind of get around that problem. Gotcha. That makes sense. Um, on the SDK3 thing, like what do you, I, we haven't really touched on it that much. Um, like what are you guys most excited about in terms of like use cases, applications that, um, that could be kind of unlocked. Um, that makes sense. I, I could take a stab. I mean, I think John actually says this quite well, and um, I'm going to steal your phrase here, John, so I'm sorry. But uh, when, when you think of private state instead of privacy, um, there's a lot of applications that do become uh, unlocked. Um, it's easy to kind of go to the, the end state and think like, oh, we can have all these cool private games and um, kind of gameplay on uh, or game state updates on chain uh, is something that really needs privacy. I think we'll get there and it is something the team's super excited on, but it may be a bit further down the road. In the immediate term uh, or more immediate term though, I think DAOs and um, kind of coding up kind of organizational structures, maybe to go back to some of the earlier points in, in the discussion, uh, something you can do really well um, in a noir kind of private state smart contract. You can code up kind of uh, quite in intricate um, company structures that have kind of privacy baked in, uh, which is how most companies function kind of uh, in the real world, but um, they can function kind of with really, really strong privacy guarantees around kind of corporate votes, um, uh, but it still can be decentralized. Um, so that's something that I'm, I'm quite excited by um, and kind of having those kind of private smart contracts or private company contracts, um, or just DAOs, if you will, uh, also be able to interact with Ethereum is, is something that uh, we're already seeing demand for through Aztec Connect. So I think, um, yeah, being able to kind of take the DAO and move it kind of into a more privacy-focused uh, environment, I think will be uh, uh, net positive. If you had to speculate uh, on what would be a potential like novel application that could maybe bring in like a... a very large amount of users like many let's say i don't want to give a specific number but many many millions of users what type of application do you think that would be net new I think users. It's still... oh, oh yeah god i was gonna say it would be a game or a net new user i think like immutable x and and things like that have, have shown it but uh, a game that's kind of having that gameplay like actually execute on on ethereum mainnet with like nfts that are actually worth something and like a backed by um, Ethereum rather than just some some game developers um, nodes, I think would be super cool. Um, that would be net new users. John, did you have a thought? No, would would I would definitely agree with that. And you know, I I think we're gonna rely on this ecosystem of developers to build off basic primitives. But like, if you think of crypto as like one of the killer use cases of crypto is just like trustless escrow, right? Like you and I kind of both agree something's gonna happen, and we don't have to trust like an intermediary. Like the blockchain is completely <clears throat> completely trustless and decentralized and takes care of that. 
Well, then you have this like new primitive, which is like trustless private escrow. We can make an agreement and know for sure it will deterministically execute under certain conditions. And only you and I need to know the, those conditions, um, but nobody else does. And like, we can't conceive of that today on Ethereum or in the real world because such a thing doesn't exist. And so um, being able to build that primitive into everything we do, I think gaming is a huge mass market example, but even something as simple as like making a bet between two parties, which is basically what a derivative is, right? It's just a side bet where it's like, hey, you and I think something's going to happen or a limit order, like you and I think something's going to happen. Um, we both place our bets. We kind of like lock it into this deterministic contract. We know for sure that the system is going to execute based on certain uh, predefined conditions and nobody else knows. Um, that primitive, I think, is a building block for lots of novel applications and gaming being a huge one. And every yeah. uh, Aztec offsite, we kind of uh, try and try and create on-chain poker. Uh, we haven't got there yet, but like it's it requires a little bit more than just uh, noir. There's some primitives um, that still need to be built. But if you think about kind of uh, the adoption of kind of like the web and stuff, like it was also led by games um, and kind of um, new applications. So I think uh, there's a lot of cool stuff that's built in, in game development that um, lasts uh, decades almost. Um, and I think it will happen in the crypto space as well. Yeah, like going off of that, like John, you mentioned earlier that one of the hard things is making people understand why privacy is really important in Web3 as compared to Web2 where people kind of don't see it as that important, right? Even though it is because it, it's just that it is inherently more private. I think part of the problem too, I've been thinking about this a lot recently with like DeFi and crypto in general, like you mentioned, like the killer feature is the trustlessness, the sovereignty that's built into it. But I don't think the average person necessarily cares that much or at least understands why that's really cool. How do you get people to want that, right? How do you make them want want sovereignty? I, I have like a very, very long-term view of crypto. Um, and I think there's a lot of FUD and from, you know, folks outside of crypto being like, you guys have been at it for 10 years, which like, it's a weird time to start the clock to say like the invention of Bitcoin or something like that. Yeah. Um, right. Or even the Ethereum ICO. Like you can always move the um, the starting line to wherever you want it to be to make it seem like we're early or we're late. Um, and so I'm not really interested in engaging in that debate. But I would just say personally, I have a very long term view of crypto, which is uh, which is ultimately a little bit cynical about the traditional ecosystem. Um, and many, many people who come into DeFi are actually trained in on Wall Street, like I was, um, and they see the corruption of the traditional financial system and this extremely fallacious view um, that there's a small number of extremely intelligent and knowledgeable individuals who can be who can have a heavy hand in determining the way that our economic and financial systems are run. Um, and my cynical view, having been inside of that system, is that uh, time is the only thing we need to dispel that notion. And um, the you know reason for Bitcoin's existence was a deep uh, and instantaneous mistrust of a global financial system in 2008. I think we're seeing that today play out in like the rise of you know the explosion in M2 and kind of like the irresponsible way in which the Fed has been tasked with you know stabilizing volatile markets. And I think we're just going to see over time um, how difficult it is for centralized parties to control. Um, a global financial system that's deeply complex and interconnected. And so 
my answer to that is kind of just wait and see. I think people will continue to lose faith in systems that are fundamentally broken and cancerous. Yeah, makes sense. Like, uh, yeah, go ahead, Mike. No, you can go. You're good. Oh, no, I was just going to keep going on that as like the bigger, super long term picture. Like, uh, I'm sure you might have seen Balaji recently released his new book, The Network State, and he kind of has been talking about this for a long time. But like something where like you would need ZKs if you wanted to have this like state that is not a traditional state that is fully online and people wanted to kind of exit their their geographically born states is that something that you're like talking about long, super long term as you think that's going to happen? I, I happen to be one of the people who feels oh, like no. uh, pilled by sovereign individual, um, which is kind of an early book written in the 1990s about, you know, the rise of like, uh, you know, essentially these extremely powerful individuals who can go shopping for sovereign governments. So I happen to believe that. I, I happen to believe that like um, these decentralized technologies are like deeply subversive uh, to centralized control. That doesn't mean they can't coexist. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think ZKs are a prime example of that, right? It's something that empowers the individual and empowers uh, the powerless. Um, it's something that is deeply protective. I mean, that's why we believe so strongly in privacy by default rather than opt-in privacy and why we believe in privacy, you know, on the deepest layers without a back door, because that that was kind of the fallacy that led us to where we are today with big tech, right? The, the whole uh, thing that we were sold on with big tech is like, trust us, kind of like subsume your individualism and your data and your financial life, and everything to us. And like, don't worry, we'll take care of it. And it turns out that like they couldn't be trusted to take care of it. And so I think just to avoid the sins of Web2, like we need to build systems that are inherently uh, resistant to that type of like centralized authority control and, and, uh, and corruption. Gotcha. I think the leveling up is also a great point. Like um, I think we're, we're maybe more, more fortunate um, like in, in more Western kind of financial ecosystems to kind of renounce that kind of, uh, that sovereign state um, because it's a higher bar, but there's a lot of people in the world who can't, they're not afforded that same like privilege. So uh, the switching cost kind of in, in UX terms uh, for them to kind of go from uh, their normal kind of cash-based uh, financial system or corrupt-based financial system is, is very, very low. Um, and I think that's that's an area where I could see that playing out. Um, and it's probably happening uh, in a lot of the kind of um, third world countries um, like Venezuela at the moment. Um, but I think it will, it may take a while for it to propagate to kind of the US or the UK. Which is kind of interesting, right? Because normally technology flows from like the rich countries down to the poorer countries. In this case, do you think there's a chance that actually the third world adopts uh, some form of crypto before uh the west does and like the the wealthier countries absolutely yeah I, I you know our our second largest user base is in china our third largest in russia these are situations in which people already have a deep mistrust of the traditional banking sector and it is something that americans take for granted if you think about most of the crypto skeptics they don't come from 
countries where there's high currency volatility or deep distrust in the financial system. It comes from Silicon Valley, people who are highly privileged, people who've been raised in a system where they can trust their currency, they can trust for the most part their government to take care of them. But let me just pose like a simple use case for crypto, which is very pro-American, actually, if you think about it. It's just the ability to transact in USD anywhere in the world. Trustlessly. I mean, like that's an insane use case for anyone who doesn't live in the United States. I mean, even Europe is finding out that uh, there's volatility relative to the USD, even if you're the second largest currency in the world. Right. Um, so I think it's it's definitely something that uh, we take for granted being, you know, Americans. Yeah. And I mean, on that note, I, we in America, we kind of skipped over QR codes in the 2000s and it was adopted by China almost immediately. And then we realized, oh, wait, maybe they're on to something. Um, so I think that when there's that legacy technology um, upgrading to the newer one, um, it, there, there are definitely examples in history of, of um, uh, less developed countries adopting um, the current technology a lot quicker than other richer, more developed uh, countries. So, yeah, if you go to parts of Africa like the the, the cell phone kind of service, right. uh, yeah. the data plans are just phenomenal, and like people have just they've gone straight to smartphones, like, um, and that's kind of a super interesting to kind of see that, and like, it, it's kind of going back to the point I had earlier on payments, like the the kind of if there is a way for those people to pay uh, in a browser. I think it's going to start to happen. It's just maybe the companies that are building it right now are focused on Western markets and they need to look elsewhere. On on the wallet part, do you think wallets should be focused? I know like browser side, but more mobile first, because I think that's one of the biggest issues with crypto too right now, right? It's like, it's, we're still very early days on mobile development. Uh, you know, obviously pretty much everyone uses their phone for most things right like what do you guys think that's like the next frontier for the user experience side me personally 100 yeah i think um there's some limitations on aztec that we're we're working as quick as we can to kind of get all these proofs working uh, on a mobile it's pretty resource constrained um but it's it's kind of the target that we're we're aiming for and i think um it's something that's always with me. Like if I have to go to my, my laptop to make a transaction, um, it's just a frictional cost, but uh, like it, it is possible um, kind of with this technology stack to create like an Apple pay like experience. That's not kind of using any kind of centralized server. And um, I think the, the adoption of mobile payments kind of shows the potential it's, it's really on, on the community and, and builders to kind of, get the UX out of something that only like a developer or someone on this podcast can kind of understand and, and get it into something that we can kind of give to our families and they just use it uh, and it's seamless. Yeah. Well, we're coming up almost on an hour here. Thanks so much for your time. I wanted to ask just one final question and, and I mean, it kind of already touched on it a bit, but like where is Aztec ideally in like, let's say three years, what, what would, where would you like to be? I'll start and uh, John, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well, but um, definitely on mobile, um, fully decentralized. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, a whole host of um, applications that require private state running running on the network um, that are built kind of on Aztec would be an awesome start, I think. Um, 
Yeah, I, I would say the same. And, and I would just add, you know, Noir being fully online and showcasing, you know, a killer use case. Like it's kind of clear now that Uniswap was the killer use case for Ethereum. And so to see someone adopt, you know, programmable privacy in that way and make the killer app for Noir and ASSEC 3, I think that would be a huge win. Awesome. Yeah. If you guys have a little bit of time, um, would you mind? Uh, Jack, I know Jack wanted to cover a little more technical stuff on Noir. One more question. Um, well, yeah, there's Noir. And um, I guess what I was really wondering actually about was uh, Plonk, which, um, you know, I think Aztec can take partial credit for, right? Um, or full. I'm, I'm not entirely sure the exact story, but um, huge contribution. Um, and John, you were kind of talking about the journey from uh, how when Aztec started, um, you know, the snarks you were dealing with were like Groth 16 and, and um, you know, really basic or probably, I guess it was Groth 16, but yeah. um, I guess to, to get to the point, um, this industry of zero knowledge, applied zero knowledge cryptography has been accelerating in the past four years incredibly quickly. Um, do you think that that growth and efficiency and uh, power is going to continue at the same rate? I definitely do. I, I think there's there's more to come, and um, yeah, Zach and Ariel, I, I think, can take take full credit for for Plonk. They're they're, they're the authors of it, uh, um, and we're very lucky to have Amazing. them kind of yeah. working on this. I, I think uh, Zach says this quite a lot, and it's if you think about. Um, the computational cost of running a program versus kind of proving that you've run a program correctly. It's about a billion times more. Um, uh, that's kind of where we were maybe with Groff 16 in terms of computation. So there are several, several orders of magnitude that we can kind of get to before we have uh, very, very fast provers that can do kind of the sort of computations that this podcast software is doing in the background that kind of our computers are doing every day like we're still doing very primitive things in these snarks um but yeah we can still do so much we can do payments so i think yeah there's definitely a lot more to come um i think getting provers to a point where kind of you're not waiting and it's it's more seamless is is definitely going to be one of uh the big challenges of um kind of the next next few years and there's lots of different approaches people are doing hardware acceleration um, our approach is usually around kind of better software and new cryptography. Um, but there's there's a lot of different approaches to kind of getting these things running faster. But there's there's a long way to go still, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've spoken with a lot of people who are um, kind of focused on the parallel or, or the horizontal scaling aspects of, of how that can be tackled as well. So, um, and then there's obviously ZPrize as well, which is further into the idea of, of um, building better software, right? Better cryptography, so... Um, that's very heartening to hear though, to know that, uh, you know, we're going to be able to continue this kind of, um, growth. Cause for a lot of us, um, who are kind of, um, ZK developers, again, I'm very excited for Noir. Um, you know, we're just kind of finding these, uh, things lying around and trying to figure out how they work. So, um, you know, as, as these tools get stronger and stronger, um, it's going to be really cool to see what uh, people who are just entering the space are able to do as they kind of realize the capabilities. Yeah, to go back to the mobile point as well, like um, it is kind of linked because if you think about what these mobile devices we all have in our pocket have been built for, it's gaming uh, and they have incredibly powerful GPUs. Um, so the Z Prize as well is doing 
some pretty cool work on like trying to translate some of these uh, proving algorithms to a GPU. Um, it's quite far off still, but that that's kind of can also unlock um, some pretty big improvements uh, in the technology. Uh, you still need to kind of have uh, an application that can tap into those um, or a browser that can tap into them, but it's it's kind of there, like unharnessed in our pockets at the moment. So when someone manages to kind of harness it, I think it'll be uh, a big leap forward. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your guys' time. This was a really awesome episode. We're fans, obviously, so we're excited to see everything you guys do in the future. Any final things you guys wanted to plug uh, before we go? I'd just say go to ZK Money and, um, uh, yeah, stick some meat. Um, we're, we're kind of, I think, we're moving up the leaderboard on uh, uh, where the role of is in terms of uh, wrap stake teeth holders. Um, so we, we want to get to number one. So uh, go and stick some ETH. Awesome. And then we'll put both of your uh, socials in the description for everybody to go follow. Uh, thanks so much for coming on, guys. Really, really appreciate it. This is great. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Bye.